Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 24, titled Pathologizing Grief. This week, an article published in the New York Times caused quite a stir. The conversations around the new conclusion on grief with a timeline are wild. But rather than offer my own hard and fast opinion, I want to invite us into the gray space here. After all, grief is a gray space all its own. It deserves a little nuance. So let's dive into the article and talk about how pathologizing grief can be helpful and harmful. After all, this is not a new conversation. It's just becoming more mainstream. And thank goodness it is. Before we go too far, let's acknowledge a few things. At no point will this episode hit all the right notes. I'm not going to work through every issue, address every question, or be able to comment on all the impacts of the significant definition of prolonged grief. This is not just about helping grievers get medical intervention or encouraging grievers to wrap it up on their grief journey. There are so many intersections here that we can't possibly attempt to address because it's about so much more. As a quick overview, the article in the New York Times has explained that the DSM-5, also known as the Bible of modern psychology, now includes, quote, prolonged grief lasting up to a year as a mental disorder. To be clear, the field of grief professionals have argued over this topic for decades. We know that grief carries no timeline, and the truth is that about 10% of people tend to struggle with adaptation and integration of their loss into their lives. The problem with a lot of the research that finds such a conclusion? It's dismissive of cultural norms and rife with bias. It ignores a lot of those intersections and all of the privilege that comes along with them. Researchers were using their medical opinions and experience to determine what symptoms of grief were problematic without understanding, again, the nuance involved in individual lives. Whereas grievers know very well that if two of us share a symptom, it could be very easy for one to carry and devastating for the other. Let's also destigmatize the word disorder. It means the opposite of ordered, okay? Meaning when something is out of place, even a spice jar on a rack, it can be disordered. A disorder is morally neutral, friends. I just want us to keep this in mind because mental disorders, no matter their shape, and their subsequent correlated behaviors are so easily moralized, vilified, and dismissed. So let's not be these people. Let's remember that we are people learning to hold space for other humans, no matter what pain they have or needs they carry. So at its simplest terms, the DSM is classifying grief as lasting a year or longer as a type of disordered thinking. They say this disorder prevents people from integrating loss into their lives that keeps them connected to their memories but also allows them to move forward in a way that they find meaningful and satisfying. I often say that life and grief are two sides of the same coin. If we experience life in an orderly fashion, it stands to reason that we would experience grief as disorderly, right? Well, that's only if you're measuring grief with a black and white framework. In reality, life is not orderly either. We may have socially acceptable steps that we've combined with our dreams to an ordered, correctly established life, right? 
You graduate high school after growing up in the American dream family, attending college, meeting your sweetheart, and repeating the cycle. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that either. But I don't know anyone who actually has lived this ideal life and worked through it in an orderly fashion. Life tends to be disordered by nature, and yet the natural order is actually more in line with grief, loss, and decay. A few episodes back, we explored the concept of wabi-sabi, an elegant Japanese principle of approaching life. This concept brings us into a more connected way of living, both to nature and through that, to ourselves in the truest sense. It's kind of like intentional soul minimalism. And in the middle of loss, that is a concept that appeals so deeply to our overworked minds and spirits. Wabi-sabi reminds us that all things fade and are beautiful in their process of growth and in their decay, and even in their renewal as a new thing. I think anyone who loves to sing the circle of life from Lion King will remind you there is a necessary cycle associated with our very existence. So if that is true, why then do we need to classify grief as pathological or as a mental disorder due to duration or disruption of our lives? I think what we may benefit from here is a distinction between grief and grieving. It's similar to the distinction between emotions and feelings, which many of us can't always tell apart. Gaining some language and clarity around the differences can help us navigate what we are experiencing and help us find a new pathway through it. So feelings are internal responses to stimuli. Emotions are the external expression, right? Which means grief is the internal response. Grieving is what manifests in our emotional states. Makes sense, right? So while one is internal, the other is an outward expression. And ideally, the outward expressions tend to reflect the internal state. But when we ignore grief or ignore our internal states, Maybe we've minimized or pushed them aside or simply decided we can't deal with something because there's too much going on. We lose sight of our internal state and we tend to wonder where those outward expressions are coming from. There's a disconnection between the two. Our insides feel awful, but our outsides may look like calm waters or vice versa. Or maybe our emotions feel and look like a tidal wave and sometimes grief is exactly that wave ready to drown us when we thought we were handling our loss so well. And honestly, we probably were. There have been days and entire weeks in the last six years of my life without mom that felt like a tidal wave, and I've been keenly aware of my grief the whole time, intentionally processing and holding space for myself as much as I can. I would call those sudden waves expected, but that's because memories are powerful and can be as real as the chair beneath us when they emerge unexpectedly. When our outward expressions do not match our internal states, whether that is intentional or unintentional, we are out of alignment. We could easily call ourselves disordered because there is a whole being within our physical body that requires alignment to function and to engage our lives as we intend. And if we are whole beings, mind, heart, body, and spirit, then we need the reminder of how to care for each part of our whole. Grief distracts us from finding realignment. When one area of our being hurts the most, sounds the loudest, and gets the most attention, that's a reasonable response. I think this is where we get into the mud, classifying grief as a disorder after a certain time frame. It can be helpful as well as harmful. If you're the person with a steady support group in your life, 
one who knows they're grieving and is actively looking for ways to process the loss and find hope, then your ongoing misalignment is already somewhat clear for you. While you may not yet feel empowered to move forward or have total clarity about what works well for you, your attention to that griefy center of your life is your secret sauce. You are doing the work no matter how small the steps seem. And it might take a really long time, but that's okay. But if you're not the person with a steady support group, you can experience an isolation that deepens your grief. And I think this is where so many of us exist, wondering if anyone can handle us, handle our story or our pain, and eventually concluding that most cannot. We assume, often rightly so, people don't want to hear about our story or cannot hold space. So we quiet our pain and try to push through our days. Before we know it, a year has passed and we feel just as confused and hurt as day one of the loss. This is the point where diagnosis, quote unquote, might be helpful. When you've been conditioned to stay quiet and alone in your pain, an outside perspective could be a boost to your confidence. This may help you find what moving forward looks like for you, as well as teach you some methods of creating the steady support you need. But it can also be very harmful. For those unfamiliar, grief appears as a mental problem to be solved, as a If a quick visit to the doctor and a prescription can heal our pain and help us create normalcy, and this is the point where grief supporters tend to check out, they might now with this new diagnosis too easily assume that if you have professional help, they no longer bear a responsibility to your relationship for deeper connection or understanding or compassion. Of course, we hope this is subconscious. Hopefully no one would intentionally dismiss our pain so easily. And when you unpack the core concepts of the New York Times article and the rationale behind the conclusion, maybe you'll start to understand why trained grief professionals and grievers are feeling upset about this because we are working to create understanding and include the layperson in grief literacy education. Slapping a label on grief as a slow burn mental disorder dismisses the general public's responsibility to their fellow human to engage and learn. Grief professionals know that grievers need true, helpful, loving, consistent supporters to heal. I'm over here now concerned that the conversation is going to shift toward even more dismissive behavior for those who are actively grieving in a long-term setting. However, I will say this. If I decided for myself at the one-year mark of grief to take a more clinical approach to working through my loss, I don't know if we would be here today. The entire healing process that I experienced included my own research looking into the brain, how it works, the human emotional body, and the psychology of loss. And this was my own path. And it took me over a year to start digging into those topics in the first place because of grief brain. Grievers struggle to read often for years. And comprehending even the simplest topics can be a nightmare because of brain fog. And that alone can elongate the grief process simply because we can't focus. Everyone I respect in the field agrees that grief is an individual process impacted by cultural, social, economic, political, religious differences, all those intersections, race, gender, all of them. There are variables we cannot even begin to comprehend in a person's grief story. And that's just it. I think we know that a formal medical definition to grief is not the solution, but maybe it will create some new resources. 
And honestly, maybe not. I don't have the answer, but I do know this. We are talking about grief on the main stage, from the microphone, in the New York Times, and the daily news shows, in the White House, in the Supreme Courts. We are discussing loss and helpful methods of healing online, in chat rooms, and on Twitter feeds, in public forums. We are embracing the idea as a culture that loss is not meant to isolate us. We are becoming united in our common experience of grief. And while we move through grief differently, we are beginning to acknowledge our shared humanity in this place. We grieve as we live. For some, it's a quiet introspection. For others, it's a passionate outcry with big expressions. So if I could offer you one last thought about this prolonged grief business, keep telling your story. No amount of pathologizing research or intellectualizing about grief can diminish your lived experience unless you allow it to do so. So be open, share your insights and understanding, your contributions add richness and color to our comprehension of loss in life. Continuing the conversation about loss in public, whatever that looks like, means that we are collectively increasing our grief literacy, our experience of losses, and how they change us. And that will never be a negative. Thank you for listening to episode 24 of Restorative Grief. It is safe to say that we are navigating some uncharted and yet familiar territory this week. Increasing grief literacy in the world is the reason I started in this field. This morally neutral life event we all experience brings no conclusions. Other than the fact that we are woefully underinformed about the meaning of life and how the world works. The article this week, however, triggered so many people. Some of the responses I read were accusatory, fearful, or just plain enraged, while others were quietly curious and thankful. And there's no right response. But if you were like me and experienced a trigger, consider it to be a small waving flag from your heart. You might be experiencing some misalignment internally and need a little support for your healing journey. That's me every day. So if you think that might be true for you too, I want to remind you and welcome you to join our Restorative Grief Project on Facebook for some insight about your triggers, your alignment, and some tools to help you move through the fog. Talk therapy, medical intervention, social support groups, journaling, and all the like. These are necessary and powerful methods of interrupting the unhelpful narratives we internalize in seasons of loss. And no matter how long they last, each method is meaningful. So please don't allow any news outlet to tell you otherwise. If this is your first time listening to Restorative Grief, I just want to thank you for showing up and sticking it out. This was a longer episode for me, and I get that. We would love for you to subscribe and leave a review wherever you are listening. Maybe share this episode with someone you know who was just as riled up as you about that article. It might be helpful to hear another perspective on the thing and diffuse the bomb, if you will. (laughs) And one last thing. Please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thank you.